Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast, where we take a behind-the-scenes, intimate look at surgery from leaders in the field. Hey, welcome to another episode of Behind the Knife. Uh, we're very excited for uh, a series that we're going to be running that's a collaboration with the Association for a- Academic Surgery, and we're going to be doing a series on clinical and health services research. Uh, this came about um, through uh, an idea by uh, Fabian Johnson, and throughout the series, we're going to be joined by Fabian Johnson and uh, Stephanie Bonney. Uh, Fabian is the co-director of the Peritoneal Surface Malignancy Program at Johns Hopkins. He's also the chair of Clinical and Health Services Research Committee for the Association for Academic Surgery. Stephanie is the assistant professor uh, from the Department of Surgery at Rutgers, and she's also a member of the Clinical and Health Services Research Committee for the Association of Academic Surgery. So, Fabian, if you ju- could just real quick, you know, tell us how you came up with this idea for this series and uh, what really inspired this. So first, how this came up was we um, found that, you know, those of us who began in health services research, we, um, we knew there were role models, but there were certainly a fair amount of people um, that we wanted to provide them a, somewhat of a roadmap for those who don't have, um, you know, role models within their institution um, to see, you know, what they can achieve um, in this career. And so we wanted to find the luminaries um, in, this, uh, in this area. And, you know, I, I'm an NPR junkie. And so um, listening to NPR in the car in the morning, a uh, fair amount of how I built it um, was on. And I thought this was the kind of a great avenue to sit down and kind of have a nice conversation with uh, individuals and learn about them and how we can, um, you know, w- how they got to where they are um, and, and build off of that. Well, that's great. It's a fantastic idea, and we're super excited to be a part of it. So let's go ahead and get started. So, Stephanie, do you want to introduce our first guest? Yes. So we're here today um, with Dr. Clifford Coe. Um, Dr. Coe is a professor and vice chair of surgery at UCLA in Los Angeles, um, and he is also the director of all of the quality programs here at the American College of Surgeons. Dr. Coe earned his bachelor's degree from the University of Chicago, followed by a master's degree from the University of Chicago and his um, medical degree from the University of Chicago as well, um, and then uh, moved on to general surgery residency at UCLA and a colon and rectal surgery fellowship at the Leahy Clinic. Um, He's participated in the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation Clinical Scholars Program um, and has worked at Rand Health as well. He is uh, here today to talk a little bit about um, his career and how he um, uh, got started and and moved into this uh, all the work that in quality. So welcome, Dr. Ko. Thank you. Nice to be here. Thanks, Fabian, Stephanie. So we like to start all of our interviews by just um, telling us a little bit about yourself. So where are you from? How did you get into surgery? What, sort of tell us a little bit of your life story and your career path. Sure, I'd be happy to. I, I'm from Chicago, born, born and raised there. And as you can see, I, I uh, didn't want to leave Chicago, so I went to college and medical school there. Uh, and then they said I should leave. So uh, then I went to the West Coast for general surgery and then the East Coast for colorectal. Uh, I, I became um, interested in surgery just uh, like a lot of people. Just I had a great mentor uh, at, at University of Chicago and, and who let me into the operating room as a first year in medical school and actually had me sew on the skin and I was terrible, but he was very uh, accommodating. And after that, that first day in the operating room, I wanted to be a surgeon. 
Yeah, I think that speaks to the the um, importance of mentorship and early mentorship and should be really an inspiration to most of us who are working with trainees and medical students that we can really change someone's life by, by paying attention to them. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, so for our listeners who aren't familiar, can you define um, what is health services research and how does it apply to your career? Yeah, it's... it's uh I think there are a lot of definitions, but the way I view health services research is that uh, it's research and investigation in, in, into delivery of health and health care. And so when I think about surgical care, I think about how do we deliver health care better, and it could be at different levels, at the, at the surgeon level, uh, at, the, at the service line level, hospital level, system level, or at the populational level. And, and, it, and so it's very broad, and it allows us to study, investigate a lot of different things. Um, about the surgical patient. So you know what's interesting, you know, why health services research? Because you, you know, maybe tell us a little bit about, did you have role models? Um, because we are, again, we we're talking about role models and kind of where to go. How did you even say this is a viable option and what kind of maybe barriers did you have along the way? Yeah, I think that as we become introspective and self-aware uh, about what our strengths are and what we like and what we don't like. I think uh, uh, going into surgery, we like the immediacy of what we do and treating a patient and taking out their cancer or fixing their the X, Y, and Z uh, and, and having the immediacy of that. The, the immediacy of a lot of the research is, is, is apparent. And so when we do clinical outcomes research or health services that we kind of see the impact uh, pretty immediately or we, we can potentially see that. And so that was what really drew me to this and the close alignment of care that we give. So I'm a colon surgeon and, and studying how we uh, do a colectomy better, how we uh, uh, perform uh, and, and take care of, of diseases that address, um, that use uh, uh, colectomy or any of those procedures. It was very attractive to me. So would you say this is kind of born out of your your practice uh, as a trainee, seeing that this is, you just want to find a better way to do what you're already doing? Uh, yeah, I think that all of us, as we're training, we're trying to figure out how to be the best surgeon we can be. And, and as we see in, in all aspects of healthcare, that there are questions that we all have, like, how do I do this better? There, and there's no evidence for this. And so do we how what is the next step if we're going to uh, do better as a surgeon and have an impact so you started the center for surgical outcomes and quality many years ago um can you tell us a little bit about how that was conceived and how it originated and um what type of research is performed there sure it was uh so i was at ucla and i was trained in the robert wood johnson clinical scholars program and what i uh, learned there was that in order to do anything, you need some level of expertise and education, which I think uh, is pretty robust in, in that regard. But the resources needed to sustain a program, to sustain research, is what I didn't appreciate until I started looking around at different uh, positions and different areas. And the, the resources and the infrastructure and the foundation to do this type of research at UCLA was... Uh, was amazing. Uh, however, it was across uh, the healthcare system and the healthcare kind of the medical school, and uh, and I wanted to do it within surgery. So uh, then we built built an offshoot of of all those resources within surgery, and 
uh, I think one of our, my colleagues came up with the name Center for Surgical Outcomes and Quality. Um, and, and so it was the idea of it was to have a multidisciplinary uh, focus and so have surgeons, have other uh, types of providers, but also have statisticians and epidemiologists. We had a, an economist. We had uh, writers because I write so terribly. Um, we had all these people around and focused on surgical disease. Uh, uh, to really focus the work, and, and it became much easier to have that foundational aspect so that we could do the work. So did you have uh, a vision of that from your time in Robert Wood Johnson? Because that's kind of a bold step to try and bring everything together under one roof, and especially, you know, maybe you can bring us through what the vision was and how did you convince everybody, probably your chair, because that sounds like there's some money involved. Um, And how did you convince everybody to say, okay, I see your vision, and 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 then bringing all those people together under one umbrella. Yeah, that's and starting things. Nobody's going to give you a ton of money to start something when you're unproven and young, and which I was. Uh, so starting it small with with baby steps. I, I uh, uh, there were similar faculty at, at my level as starting out at UCLA in statistics in Epi, and and we got together and people were basically donating their time because nobody had any money, and then suddenly success begot more more success. Suddenly we got, did that. We were able to get grants. Our, our home kind of departments funded us and then, and we built on from that. But certainly, you know, I went, can I have a million dollars? And yeah, there was no luck in, in, in that ask, but building it uh, and having a vision there, uh, which goes to the point of organization and what is the mission of this? What are our success? Uh, what, what do we count as our successes and what are we trying to deliver was very important in the beginning. Maybe you can give us a little bit more, too, about the leadership that was around you. I think there are certainly some leaders who think this is somewhat of a fad, right? That, you know, everyone is, you know, who are the successful people um, that have gone down this track um, and may not be as supportive? And so for the young listener that's out there or the mid- junior mid-career faculty, you know, um, certainly success begets success, but sometimes people have blinders on. And so <laughs> yeah. how do, again, maybe a little bit more about that background, that context, this other leaders that saw your vision um, or how you sold it. Maybe you're just like an excellent seller. Maybe not a writer, but you're a seller. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think that's, I, I, in health services and surgery has its, you know, however many years, 10 years, 15 years, 20 years. But health services overall has been much, much longer and broader than that. And so I was lucky at UCLA that we had very successful health services researchers in in medicine and in pediatrics and in psychiatry. And, uh, and so communicating how, what their successes were, and there's a lot of definitions of success. And so one, in, in the academic world, grants and papers. So there are people there with, you know, publishing regularly in the high-impact journals, getting millions and millions of dollars in grant funding. And, you know, as I went to our surgical leaders and said, look, this is what they're doing. We could do the same thing. And suddenly that made sense to them. Uh, for me, I, I want to have an impact in how we give care. And I want to have an impact in all of our patients that come to UCLA or in Southern California or across the country or the world. And so that's meaningful to me. And watching uh, what they do in, in these other specialties and these other disciplines and how they 
had impact is what I really wanted to do. So marrying those two things together, and yes, sometimes it is selling it, uh, and it doesn't uh, doesn't hurt to be a good seller. But if there's content behind it, and there's reason and evidence behind it, and you have these, and and I was lucky with these mentors in these different fields and coaches, mentors, whatever you want to call them, they were they were very instrumental in helping me develop having a vision, uh, a realistic vision, and developing the process to getting there. So. Uh, so all of those things really came uh, came together. And it sounds like passion um, from, from listening to you is a major component of that, following uh, this passion. Um, can you speak a little bit on, on that? Yeah, I think that that's for anything, that people deciding on anything, whether it's their specialty, you know, colorectal or endocrine or cancer or trauma, uh, if they don't have a passion for it, it's very hard to get up and doing it, do it day after day, year after year. And this passion was very is very much aligned with, I think, being a clinical surgeon. How do I do this better? How do I do a rectal cancer operation better? How do I make sure the patient goes through um, and without a complication better? How do I make sure that at five years their quality of life is better? Uh, there are so many so many ways that we can make our care better, and uh, answering uh, answering these questions in a systematic, investigative. A responsible way is is what my passion is. I want to um, <laughs> take a, a second to just ask this is my own question. You know, the Robert Johnson uh, clinical scholars was kind of phased out, right? And uh, a fair amount of um, leaders have in surgery and of course medicine have come from that program. And so, do you see any downstream effect of that, or do you think you know we've kind of been arriving? And we may not need that. Do you? What, what's your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think that the the tenets of the clinical scholars program was uh, kind of like what we have in in re- training or other research fields is some level of formal education. So to, I think to do this research, you have to know statistics and epidemiology and and kind of study design and 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 analytics and and um, understanding the healthcare set, those types of things. And so I think that's part of it. Another part of that was in clinical scholars is mentorship, role models, ad- advise, advisors, uh, and multidisciplinary advisors uh, is the second thing. And the third thing is kind of having a system to go through it and not be so haphazard. And so it was very purposeful of what you did your first quarter, your second quarter, or your third quarter, who you worked with, how, how hands-on or not hands-on was this. And as people kind of went through the program how the development and independence was put into play so that by the end theoretically and and realistically that you are uh, ready to be an independent investigator with knowledge uh, mentorship coaching and which never ends uh, and ready to write grants and papers and, and and so forth i think that you know if it's not under the guise of rwj and clinical scholars that that could be recreated and i know that there are a lot of centers, a lot of universities who are recreating that and within the surgical realm. I think it is very important to learn from our colleagues of what they've done in health services. And and that's maybe where um, places can, can really uh, fulfill more opportunity is really working with our colleagues and other specialties and understanding and translating what they do into surgery. So... It seems like you took what you learned from the Clinical Scholars Program and were able to um, 
you know, apply it to your career and develop a better understanding of data and quality. And now um, you've moved into your oversight roles in the college of the, the SSR and NISQIP and um, the we were talking about some of the other ones, bariatrics, TQIP, and so um, it, there's so so many studies that are being published out of these databases. Um, what do you think uh, we could do to be, what, where do you think the gaps are right now in the research and using the data? What kind of other studies would you like to see that would come out of the data? And what is the what is missing from the data sets yeah. right now that would add more to what we can yeah. That's can a great do. question. You know, I think that for any of us doing research, we have these questions and, you know, people come up with the questions in in various places. I know I, I think a lot about questions as I attend M&M, like, wow, should we have done that? What, what would we have done differently? And where's the evidence for that? And uh, can we get evidence for that? How would we do it? Do we need to develop our own data and do a trial? Do we need to, is there data available? Can we put data sets together? Uh, so, and people f find great questions all over the place. Uh, once somebody has a question, then it's figuring out where, how do we answer it? What's the best way to answer it? And I think that's where a lot of the formal education comes in is like how we, people can responsibly answer it or people can irresponsibly answer it. And the irresponsible stuff kind of leads to sometimes worse care. And so uh, how do we responsibly answer that? Now we'll use data and what data, so then it's what data do we have? What data can we get? Uh, and what are, the, what are the pros and cons of using that data? The, the college registries have really been born out of clinical registries that, that, that really focus on uh, the accuracy and the quality of the data. Uh, and so NISQIP is like that, the bariatric program is like that, TQIP, the trauma uh, uh, registry is like that, and, and, and there's others. Uh, and so understanding what can be answered in those registries with those variables is, is very important. As we look to other, but that that's, doesn't answer all questions. And so we, as we look at more questions and more things to answer, does the re can the registry answer that, or does the registry have to be linked to another thing? So if we wanted payment stuff, do we link these registries to cost data? Um, we're starting now at the college because we think that the patient voice is very important, that we're starting to do work uh, with patient reported outcomes. And so that when we have, for example, in trauma is gonna do this, and NISCOP's gonna do this in bariatric, that we have their clinical data and their clinical outcomes and we can risk adjust those. But now we put in the patient voice of, you know, do I have pain, do I, what's my function, uh, uh, things like that, and using validated surveys that way and, and putting those things together. So those are some of the things, <clears throat> excuse me, that I think that are gonna come down the pike that will uh, make the data more robust, but there's clearly a lot of questions that we cannot answer with with the debate databases and understanding that at the outset is going to be very important. Yeah, I think one of the really interesting and rich things that we can add is the patient reported outcomes because and long term outcomes because then you know we have all this very um, robust clinical data about what happened in the hospital, but then there's sort of a gap in knowledge about what what's happening to these patients six months, 12 months right. down the road, and, and where are they at in their lives, and what is reassimilating back in after a disease yeah. look yeah. like? Yeah. I think another important that I've come to respect increasingly more now, especially at the college, is, you know, we have our efficacy trials where we see if, you know, uh, procedure A is better than procedure B, or drug A is better, uh, those types of trials. 
and then we have our effectiveness trials. That like, how effective is it when we put it into 100 hospitals or 1,000 hospitals? I think the college is in something like 3,000 plus hospitals. And so if we say that this thing, you know, this procedure works or this, this therapy works, how many of these 3,000 hospitals are doing it? Or how do we implement? And it's kind of the implementation research. And that aspect of things is... Uh, is almost as hard, if not harder, than the efficacy work because now it's you're dealing with all these different hospitals, all these different systems, uh, issues that they're they're dealing with. I know that you know that is a aspect of research that I think a lot of people, a lot more smart people, uh, smart surgeons should get into because that's 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 a huge gap right now. I'm just curious what your thoughts are about what affects outcome i mean you look at all this data all the time so what do you think has the biggest influence on outcomes is it the surgeon is it the hospital system is it the insurance status yeah that's uh i think it's one of those things where it's very multifactorial it's kind of like when we all deal with for example ssi we've been working on ssi forever and then we had the skip program that came up with whatever four or five things and if you did these four or five things we wouldn't have any more ssi and yet now we do those four or five things at 98 percent compliance and we still have ssi uh, because the list of factors that that play into ssi is probably 50 plus things and i think it's the same thing with out- any other outcome it's just and as we group them there's patient factors there's provider factors within the provider factors there's the surgeon anesthesia nursing, you know, everything else. There's the hospital system factors. There's social determinant factors. And, and, and so it's, it's, uh, it's so multifactorial that, and there's a ton of work to do kind of organizing these things and then figuring out where the real impact is. So you just got me really excited as an implementation <laughs> scientist because you brought us up. And, um, and, and we were a small but growing fierce group. And so, like, as you said, implementation science can be really hard. And I think towards that end, you know, training programs around this are probably uh, necessary within surgery. Um, You know, I got my training outside of surgery with um, internal medicine docs and went to the NCI. But um, one, what can the college do around this? Because this is a growing field. And as we think about this, within the larger structure of what the college is doing from a quality standpoint, because certainly quality and implementation overlap very much. Um, how can we meld these? Um, um, cause that's real. The real change is going to be, I mean, uh, I'll talk about some other, uh, ask some other questions, but how, how can we meld those? There's a more meta level question. Yeah, that's a great, that's a great question. And I think that for all of us, uh, whether we're in training or finished training or thinking about going, I mean, in medical school and going into training, Understand if we make it very personal uh, and figure out. So I'm a, again, I'm a colon surgeon. How do I treat my patients better? And in wherever I am. So if I'm in clinic, how do I communicate better? If I'm in the OR, how do I operate better? How do I operate more efficient? How do I have resource stewardship so I don't use ten different staple fires, but I maybe only use one? How do I, you know, do that? Postoperatively, how do we efficiently uh, do um, uh, d- do that? I think when we start to make it personal, we start to gain uh, look into the quality aspects, and then when we want to improve quality, it is a lot of the implementation aspect. So implementation of whether it's education or communication or leadership uh, or use of data. 
all of those things in the world of implementation. And, in the, and then so if I'm one colon surgeon, but there are five other colon surgeons where I work, how do we do things similarly or not similarly? If we don't do things similarly, then the nurses taking care of all five of us is going crazy because, oh, Dr. Ko does it this way, Dr. Jones does it this way, blah, 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 blah. And then our organization is in total chaos, which sometimes we are. Uh, but how do we implement uh, a standardized way of doing it? How do we look at data to figure out, all right, our standardized way needs to up, up, go up a level and how to re revise it and re-standardize it, which is the communication and leadership aspect. So all of, like, all of those principles in implementation research and quality are largely the same. But when we start to make it personal, which should be our passion anyway, because this is why we are surgeons taking care of patients and how do we do that better, it aligns so well. I think that most everyone who is a surgeon is actually also an implementer and a quality person. And, and if there are formal things to learn about that, of techniques that work better than others, the college should do that. All of our organizations, our surgical organizations should be doing those things, I think. Uh, uh, ditto? Uh, is, that, is that reasonable? <laughs> Uh, what was that? Harry made salary? Was that ditto? Okay. I don't know. Anyway. All right. No one knows that. I'm not going to listen to this podcast. They're like, these people are old. Stop. Um, <laughs> so um, towards that end, you know, often we're looking at different aspects of uh, um, clinical health service research. We talk about a little bit about implementation science. How does, uh, how do you see the, you know, overarching, because me, a lot of this, and I think us as uh, health service researchers should have a policy and advocacy hat, right? And so for those that really want to be policy experts, you know, use the data to push policy um, or really uh, advocacy um, passionate, um, how, how do you see that future? Because I think there's certainly, I think most of us are probably coming around to or agree with the advocacy um, piece. but. It hasn't conventionally always been that way. And so, you know, how do you see that? How should we be going? You know, what's, what's your view? Yeah, I think that there's a number of ways. So if we think about how our care is given now, and we think, you know, one of the things that we want to decrease is the variation in care. And so how do we decrease the variation in care in, in whatever the universe is? Is it the five surgeons at UCLA? Is it the all of UCLA's system? Is it the state of California or whatnot? What is the variation that we're trying to address? And so um, one way to do that is having policies. So we have policies at our hospital. We have policies in our system, our state, and in our country. If we're, and, and then, you know, I always look at what's the feasibility of having a policy and what are the, the pros and cons of it, what are the effects of it, and what are the unintended consequences of it. Uh, so if we're talking kind of to your question of at the largest level, for example, po setting policies in place, regulations, uh, uh, um, uh, legislative things, um, as in my experience of doing this, there's probably two, at least two ways of going at it. So one is kind of through getting the knowledge base of uh, what a health service researcher would have. And so what, what are data? What can data say? What, and if you have a measure, uh, what would that metric um, be able to do and not do? So if we have, for example, uh, a, you know, all of us are trying to work on readmission. So there's a, me a measure, a performance measure for readmissions. You know, and sometimes we say, like, well, all cause or, or cause 
uh, related to the surgery or it could be, you know, whatever um, those things are. So there are real important aspects of the technical pieces of a measure that a health services person would know and understand the pros and cons of those things. And then developing those measures, which a lot of health services people do, these performance measures, because they're good ones and they're bad ones. But as people develop and have more and more good ones, that comes from the HSR side. And then saying that, all right, you go to for some, some governing body and say, all right, the measures that you have are you know, B minus, but I he, I have an A minus uh, measure, and we need to put that into play. And then you kind of go into the policy realm, knowing the technical, methodologic, uh, and performance of the measures that that you've developed. Uh, that's a very uh, effective way. I see a lot of people in D.C. talking about measures, uh, either at the NQF or other places where they understand the pros and cons of measures, and they understand the environment of of what measures are doing uh, and able to kind of assemble and place where the gaps are. So that's one way. The other way is coming from the policy side, understanding how the government works, understanding how these organizations work and seeing what the needs are and then and then kind of saying, all right, what are the measures that are available? How do we put that into play? Um, either way, I think the big picture, the big vision, the big why, why are we doing this is to impact care. So if we wanted to impact care, whatever it is, decrease uh, mortality, decrease complications, increase value, decrease resource use or whatnot, understanding if a policy is put into place, do the benefits outweigh the risks? What are the unintended consequences? Clearly, we've had a lot of measures in surgery that I, I know the all of us know about where we've had unintended consequences. We've bought so many things just to, you know, like the razor thing or the, the, the warm up the patient thing and go crazy over these things that I'm not sure that had the impact that we wanted to. So recognizing all those, then wearing the hat as a clinical surgeon, do these things make sense? And so it has to go through a lot of these kind of checkoffs is the, is the metric tech uh, technically good, methodologically good. What is the kind of the impact, pros and cons in the policy world? What does it take to put it into a payment program or put it into some kind of metric that everyone's used? And then what does it mean for me as a surgeon? Does this is this going to really help my, the patients that I'm operating on? That's that's excellent. I think what I got from that too is we really do need these multidisciplinary teams because the policy piece, understanding. <laughs> yeah. how to even go down that line or speak um, the language that a politician or policymaker needs to hear um, so that you can even implement uh, something. I think you need that policy expert on your team. Yeah. You need, um, and so can you speak a little bit about, uh, I mean, it's, it's almost coming full circle again, about if you're a young surgeon in practice, right, I'll <laughs> what you did, um, there may not always be that young group uh, people that are starting at the same time. So can you speak a little bit about you know, you've built teams at multiple different places at multiple stages of your career. And can you speak a little bit about the importance of that and kind of how you went about it? Yeah. So, so building a team is key. Building a team requires leadership, vision. I think it requires great communication. It requires selecting the right people. You know, there's all these leadership books and team books. You know, uh, one of them is uh, getting the right people on the bus, the wrong people off the bus, and then getting the correct person in the correct seat. 
And so understanding that uh, is 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 really important and 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 as things progress you know people's roles might change people's you know talents might change but ha- but but that that's going to be very important i think a lot of it is very local just like uh, quality you know they say politics is local i think quality improvement is very local it depends on who's you know even when we see hospitals quality in one service line versus another service line even though they could be right across the hall from each other might be very very different and i think developing teams is very local in that you know what are the resources what are their time availabilities what are their knowledge bases what is, what is their uh, passion for these things and then kind of making do with what you have or if you have to recruit. Um, but the team aspect, kind of getting to back what you're saying, is that can one person do this or can a whole, is it require a team? And I definitely think it requires a team. And then it really, the team you put together really depends on your ultimate goal. Is it to develop a measure? Is it to put it into policy? Is it to publish a paper? Is it to improve our our uh, resource use on the colorectal service, uh, it'll, it'll depend on what that final goal is and, and communicating and, and making sure everyone on the team understands what the final goal is. So speaking of getting local, um, I think one of the opportunities for young surgeons or one of the things that I've seen that offers um, a leadership component and an advocacy component and a health science research component is using the college's um, quality programs to develop collaboratives. Um, and I think that that's a really unique um, opportunity for, um, you know, younger surgeons to go to their state, to their chapter, to their, you know, regional area um, and develop a local quality collaborative. So can you talk a little bit about how the college's quality programs support that and what um, what kind of outcomes and what kind of projects can come out of the development of these collaboratives? Yeah, that's, that's also very important. And so we have this book that's, uh, the cover is red, and we call it the Red Book, but it's really called the Optimal Resources for um, Surgical Quality and Safety. And one, and it, uh, we really feel collaborators are so important. There's a chapter devoted to uh, development and the the use uh, implementation of collaboratives. And basically, it's you know it's collective intelligence. How do we deal with this problem? We don't know how to deal with it. Does this other hospital do with, know how to deal with it? Does this other service line know how to do that? And collaborators are really just collaborative learning and collaborative sharing. So in order to do that, you know, what we've seen in collaborators, whether it's across NISQIP or bariatric or trauma or all the other groups, is that there needs to be kind of just like a team, any team, there needs to be a leader who's going to be the cheerleader, but also the manager and kind of the decision maker and um, and sometimes has to act uh, very purposeful, sometimes is the servant leader, but is the person who keeps it going. Uh, there has to be effective data uh, uh, that, that people act on because it's telling stories without data lasts only so long and then people, like I've heard that already, I'm not gonna come anymore. Uh, so the, it's very short lived w- w- without, without the data. Um, and then, I really think an important part is the um, the cadence of meeting. If uh, so, what I mean by that are, are people meeting once a year and kind of between the other 364 days, they're just like, okay, don't think about it, don't live it. As a uh, are in this quip, some of the 
um, very successful collaborators have met quarterly with phone calls in between and have very dedicated projects that the group identifies and the leader kind of keeps going. So whether it's something aligned with what we're all working on today is, you know, is it implementation of a enhanced recovery protocol? Is it dealing with a complication, a SSI or pneumonia? Is it, um, you know, any of these things, uh, and then working together towards those things, uh, uh, and finally, I think that one very crucial thing is the culture of the collaborative. So there are collaborators that come out and say, you know what, the culture of us, is of this quality safety collaborative is that I feel safe uh, in, in airing our dirty laundry. Like we had a patient who stayed, you know, 73 days for this colon and what, what do we do about it? And having that piece uh, is very um, refreshing, but it's also very... Um, it's a great opportunity to share and it opens up uh, a lot of great conversations and a lot of great networking in these collaboratives. And I think that, you know, there's, there are a lot of examples uh, published and non-published of these collaborators really moving faster than an individual facility trying to do improvement. Yeah, I, uh, I found the Red Book to be great. I mean, very readable, and it's like not sort of cumbersome or, or I, I mean, I, I think it's a great resource. It's like a nice thing to have up on the shelf if you're if you're doing health sciences research for sure, because or health services research because it's um, it's sort of the the primer. I'm gonna ask. Uh, I'm gonna try, and maybe it's controversial. It's gonna be very, very exciting <laughs> for a podcast. But you know, the JAMA Surgery series came out on how do we how do we use these databases, right? And I thought that was an excellent series. And so you know, you've seen the evolution of this from the beginning, right? And and so as we look at the use of these databases, and um, you know, everybody when I'm interviewing people, like I want to be a researcher, and people just do some stuff. What do you, you know, what do you think those gaps are? What do you think that, how should we be very careful about using it? Because, you know, past what you, your paragraph and limitation sections, like what should we be thinking of as researchers, um, both the novice and the advanced folks? So I guess one thing that I would hope is that, is the big question of what question are we asking and can we answer it with the data that we have? So that's a huge thing. And I, I would hope that people would want to get uh, try to answer uh, the most impactful question that they can. So that's number one. Number two is, can we answer the question, uh, and we talked about this earlier, what, can we answer the question with uh, the data that I have in this database? And if we can, great. If we can't, then we have to figure out a different way. Part and parcel with that is that do we understand what this database is and what it isn't? Do we understand the definitions of the variables, how they were collected, you know, for how long were they collected, what are the limitations of this database, and what are the, you know, the, the benefits of this database? There's always the aspect of statistics, and there's a lot. Statistics, we think it's very black and white, and it's, and it's, and it's uh, right or wrong. Uh, there's a lot of variability and, and nuance in, in doing statistics, and I think that um, anyone who has taken statistics and then kind of looks at a journal like, wow, that was not right, and that could have been done better. Like, wow, that's like this got by the editors or the reviewers. So knowing statistics is very, very important, and I don't, I, I, uh, I think that all of us uh, uh, can recognize that. But those are some very general principles of how we can responsibly, hopefully, at the big picture, um, uh, answer these impactful questions. 
So as we get close to the end, um, this is more of the philosophical question. How do you, what is the future? You know, what is the future health services research? Um, where do you see, what do you see, and what do you want to see um, as we go forward? Yeah. So I think now is a great time to sit back and reflect for, uh, on a number of fronts. So if we think about 10 or 15 years ago before, for example, I think this is the 15th year of NISQIP. Uh, before that time, uh, and ever since, you know, everyone hears about Ernest Codman 100 years ago, he said, we should have data, and then nobody had data. And for a long time, we never had data on what we're doing. Uh, when NISQIP started, there were a handful of data registries to tell us what we're doing, and NISQIP has, uh, has expanded. Other registries have developed. So now that there are over, I think, a, a 100 or 200 uh, clinical registries in healthcare. And so if we think about the last 10 or 15 years, where we are now versus then, uh, we have a lot more data uh, for, um, for knowing what we're doing, how we're compliant with processes, doing risk adjustment. And so just in the last 10 or 15 years, and largely thanks to surgery and surgeons, uh, that has really helped to advance healthcare in our knowledge of, of, of how we're doing. So I think that in the next five to 10 years, there is going to be a movement forward of how do we improve the system and what it does it take to improve the system and what are the metrics we want to use to improve the system. For NISQIP, it had always been mortality and complications, uh, but going forward, it's going to be things like resource use, efficiency, patient reported outcomes, uh, systems organization, uh, those types of things, uh, kind of the things that you were talking about in terms of implementation. Um, there's going to be higher level things, not just the colorectal service or not just our hospital, but across a system. How do we divide things? If our hospital has, uh, if our system has seven hospitals, how might we divide? Do we do colorectal at all seven or do we kind of keep it and regionalize it? Uh, how does it affect patients? Uh, those types of things of our true delivery uh, at, a, at a different level than what we've been thinking about in the past is going to be really, really important. I think for surgeons participating in this, it gets back to kind of our mission as surgeons. How do we deliver care better? And as the group of surgeons, how do we deliver care better across, across our universe, whether it's our service or facility or our system or our country or the world? And I think that th having, having a bigger view of what we're doing and always thinking in the back of our mind, is this gonna be impactful? Uh, when I was at RAND, my, uh, my boss, the, the head of RAND Health, was always asked, all of us, all the, all of the staff, what is the contribution of your paper to the literature? Is it crap? Is it a Me Too paper? Is it controversy that's going to raise uh, discussion? Mm -hmm. Is it going to have an impact that people are going to read it and change their practice? Yeah. And I think that when we think about research, what is the impact? If we ask ourselves, what is the impact of this research or impact of our paper or impact of our quality improvement program or impact of this process improve or whatever we're doing, what is the impact? Because none of us want to do zero impact work. Uh, and so, but really stepping back and asking ourselves that as we're doing our work, I think is, is, is very important. I, I got chills. I'm going to go and write something. I don't know what, <laughs> but I'm going to go do something with my life. I'm feeling I'm, I'm wasting it. So, so as, as we go on this podcast, we'll find that I watch too much TV and listen to too much radio. So here's some questions to get to know you. 
What's your favorite color? I, I love blue. Blue, very good. And what's your favorite food? I, um, what is my favorite food? I love spaghetti. Just straight spaghetti? Spaghetti, yeah. No, I'm not a good cook, and so it's usually out of the jar. <laughs> and I would love to learn how to make pasta from scratch, but I can't, so it's usually out of the box. It's, e it's easy. That's what somebody <laughs> says. What about hobbies? Do you have hobbies? So I, um, I just like a lot of uh, Asian kids, I grew up playing the piano, and I was terrible at it. Uh, but I actually um, transitioned over to playing non-classical piano and through actually why i stayed this is a, a little embarrassing why i stayed in chicago for uh college and medical school was that i was in a band that and i played the piano and i um and we were just like a garage band but we one day played somebody's wedding and made money uh, and then, so for those years of college and medical school, I was in a wedding bar mitzvah band. Oh, my God. Um, uh, what was the name and, of this and band? Made a, oh, I don't remember. You got, really. you, sure I don't you know. <laughs> yeah. uh, that's, a little, that's a TMI thing. That's an addendum but, uh, <laughs> to this podcast. <laughs> but, you know. Really amazing pictures with oh my God. sweet hair. Sweet yeah. Hair, I can imagine <laughs> it was a little. Oh, my God. The gel and the things. Oh, my God. The spray. Favorite movie. Oh, you know, I don't really, I, you know, I travel a lot, so I'm on a lot of airplanes, but usually my headphones don't work, so I see a lot of movies, but I don't hear them. Uh, that, that's a great question. I don't really. Okay. I love the Star Wars series. Okay. Yeah. All right. Uh, the middle movies, how are we doing with the first through third series? Yeah, I think I like the recent ones. Okay. <laughs> I like a lot of the Pixar, I like a lot of the Pixar movies, actually. Okay. Those are all good. Yeah. Okay. And do you have a pet? Yes. So I have a toy poodle. Mm -hmm. uh, the toy poodle's name is Dakota. It's mm -hmm. a it's a it's a female. Mm -hmm. And uh, if you're on a conference call, if I'm on a conference call with you, uh, you will hear Dakota barking in the background because she's just like constantly barking and so people it's kind of bad because then they know i'm taking a conference call yes. from home well, but <laughs> that's the problem with small dogs although my dog is large and barks all the time too <laughs> yeah. well dr clifford co you said it you did it all we thank you so much for the opportunity to be our first podcast well great and um, um we appreciate all you do great so fabian you. stephanie thank you so much all right all right, that was a great conversation. I appreciate everybody. We're really excited about this collaboration with Behind the Knife and the AAS. I like to give we like to give everybody the opportunity if they have Twitter handles, anything that they want to plug. Doctor Co, Doctor Bonnie, Doctor Johnson. Where can people find you if they want to find out more about you or, or learn about you? I am at Fabian Johnson. F A B I A N J O H N S T O N. Uh, I am at Scrubbed In on Twitter, and um, you can also find me uh, through the AWS, where I do a lot of the social media. So you can also follow at Women Surgeons, and you'll get a lot of me as well. I'm on Twitter. I don't know what mine. <laughs> 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 All right, so just go just Google you. Google yeah, you. Just, they'll yeah. find you. <laughs> All right, well that was fun, guys. We're looking forward to the next one. Thanks a lot. Until next time, dominate the day. Mm -hmm.